And we continue today with our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, and we, if you don't know, uh, what we're doing is we are methodically working through um, the letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth that we know and we have in our scriptures is 1 Corinthians. Uh, we are methodically working our way through this. We're going to be doing it for quite some time. We've been going since the beginning of the year, and we are now um, today jumping into 1 Corinthians 6. So if you've got your Bibles handy, you can open up. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses uh, of 1 Corinthians 6, and uh, we're going to see how this lays out. Now, as I was prepping, um, actually, I was saying this started last week as I was doing my, my you know, background on, on these 11 verses and kind of wrestling with what it is that God wanted for us. I, I was having a little bit of difficulty because if you've been following along, I know some of you are, are, are working to, to kind of be reading and studying the scriptures as we get to um, Sunday, and I would encourage you to do that. But, but as we've been following along, um, and getting ready, we, we read that today is all about lawsuits in the church. Um, so, so the scenario where we have Christians that are suing, not criminal cases, but civil cases, are suing other Christians for financial um, wrongs or ways that they've been hurt. Um, they're suing one another in, um, in the public courts in Corinth. It's actually really common in Greece. Right? One, one of the things we know about ancient Greece is that because they were so steeped in human philosophy and wisdom, they were often arguing things in court. And in fact, one of the rules there was everybody when they turned age 60 had to serve a year as an arbiter. Um, and anybody that was over 30 could be pulled in to, to serve on a jury, similar to, to our rules here in a jury trial. And so um, by some estimations in, in Athena and Corinth, um, upwards of 40 to 50% of the population was usually involved in a, a civil litigation of some sort at any given time, either as an arbiter, a juror, a plaintiff, or a defendant. That's ridiculous. Right? But that was the common culture in Corinth. And what happened is the believers had, had come to know Jesus and then they kept acting in that way, just doing what was typical for non Christians at the time. And so Paul writes to them and addresses this. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? We don't have a big issue with that here at Blessed Hope Community Church. Like, I actually, I said this during first service, and, and I'll confess it to you as well. For a minute there, I thought, man, I wish we had some lawsuits, right? Because then I'd have something concrete to talk about. And then I repented because that was bad. Um, but, but I was really thinking, like, you know what? This is not something that's common in Blessed Oak Community Church. It's not common in the churches in Vinton. We don't even really, even though we live in such a litigious society here in this culture, we don't even really read or hear about these things with believers suing believers in churches outside of this place. And so ultimately I was struggling with how are, how are we going to deal with this? And that, that's when I had a conversation with Pastor David. And, and Pastor David always has great insights. And, and, and um, through our conversation and our discussion, you know, basically we get to this point where, where we're having the realization that, you know what? We may not have the issue of lawsuits, but the attitude that brings them 
is pervasive. The attitude that brings them is ever-present in our culture and in the church. In this culture and in church, the attitude of offense. We are so easily offended at every step of the way over every little thing. We get so easily offended. And what's funny about offense is it's a short walk from offended to lashing out. The Corinthians, they lashed out with lawsuits. In our culture, we lash out differently. But the attitude of offense that so easily lashes out is so common. And here's part of the problem with it. When we get offended, we are so sure that we're right. We are so convinced that we're right. I can count on one hand out of the many, 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 many times that I have been offended. I can probably count on one hand the number of times that I was offended and knew right away that I was in the wrong. More often than not, When I'm offended, I am so confident in my rightness that I I lash out. I'm justified in my behavior. What I do makes sense to me because I'm right. I take matters into my own hands. Right? This is what happens in our culture. We may not sue each other, but we get offended and we react. And our attitude is no different. And so as we dig into 1 Corinthians 6, I think what Paul has to say to the church in Corinth, he also has to say to all of us, right, about ways to respond in Christian love, how we are different as a body than folks that are not a part of the church. And that's not a knock on people that aren't part of the church, but here's the deal. If what we preach is true, and we've seen it in the first five chapters of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, if what we preach, if what we believe is true, if when we walk through the door of salvation, we are born again in the Holy Spirit of God, our old lives are gone, our new life is born in its place, if that's true then doesn't it stand to reason that with the Holy Spirit of God, the wisdom of God living inside of us, and the mind of Christ that we are to pursue, doesn't it make sense that we ought to be different than the rest of the world? The problem is the church in Corinth wasn't. They were acting just like everybody else. And so Paul's going to point out in this text that there are two problems with that. Right? One is that the reputation of the church is at stake. And two is that their view of themselves is far too low. Basically, they're acting like Susan B. Anthony coins. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say a Susan B. Anthony coin. And some of you are old enough that you do. Who knows? Oh, this is the old group. Like three people for a service. 
You guys online, you, can, you, guys, you guys watching online can take a picture of yours that you know you have stuffed in a drawer somewhere and, and post it. But, but we don't use these coins anymore. If you have one, who's got one still? Right? You've got them tucked away somewhere, right? For little keepsakes. They're like $2 bills. We know they exist, but nobody has them. Susan B. Anthony's, they, they were dollar coins. There was a point in time where the U.S. Mint decided they wanted female representation um, in, in the monetary system. Good call. Um, they, they chose to make $1 coins, Susan B. Anthony coins. The problem with Susan B. Anthony coins is they were almost identical in size and weight. They just had a little bit weird edges, but in size and shape, they were almost identical to a quarter. And so people would do what I have done with them in the past. Even though it's worth a dollar, I would accidentally put it in the video game or accidentally put it in the pop machine. And ultimately, they, they fell out of circulation because people didn't want them and people didn't use them because they looked like a quarter. Now, work with me here. That's what the Christians in, in Corinth were being. A lot of times, that's what we're being. We're worth a dollar. But we look an awful lot like we're worth 25 cents. We are made new in the Holy Spirit. We are born again in the Spirit of God. We have the wisdom of Christ living in us. We are to pursue the mind of Christ. We are worth so much more. But to a watching world, we act like we're worth a quarter. So there's no difference. And we've got to be able to get on top of this. And this is the point that Paul's making as he digs in to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so you can open up your Bibles and look with me. I'll have a few of the verses on the screen. Um, But um, I'm going to read you the first eight. So if you want to open up and follow along, that would be great. I've got the ESV here. So when one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. And so as we, as we dig into this, Paul starts very simply by saying, Look, with all due respect, you are doing it wrong. And by now, the church in Corinth should be used to hearing that they're doing it wrong because they've been doing it wrong This entire time. And Paul keeps reminding them who they are in Jesus and the standing they're supposed to have in Jesus. And then he keeps pointing out to them that the life they're choosing to live doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense based on who they claim to be. And and in this chunk, he says the same thing. He's like, when one of you has a grievance, right? 
When one of you has a grievance, and he's talking about brothers in the church, people that have been made new in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like when one of you is offended by the other, do you dare? Do you dare sue each other? Go to law before the unrighteous instead of keeping it in the church and dealing with it in the church. Right? He starts this by saying, like, like when, when one of you is offended by the other, when one of you is hurt by the other, do you really go outside of the church to air your grievances? Is that really what you do? Right? And he's not really asking a question. This is rhetorical. He knows this is what they do. He's been told this is what they do. Probably, again, by Chloe's people who have said, look, here's what's happening. Right? People in the church are acting like unsaved people, and they're out there suing each other. They're hurting the reputation of the church. They're not advancing the gospel. They're hurting the gospel, and, and, and we need help. And so Paul is helping here, and he's saying, is this really how you're going to do this? Are you really going to be so offended and so hurt by other believers in Christ that you're going to go outside of the walls of the church and you're going to complain about it? To people that aren't saved. Are you going to put a stumbling block between them and Jesus? And you think about how that works. You of course are putting a stumbling block between them and Jesus. Because all they need to worry about is Jesus. Getting to Jesus. Submitting to Jesus. Surrendering to Jesus. But I'm making that when I go outside of the church to complain about the church or complain about people in the church. I'm making Jesus so unattractive. I don't want anything to do with him. And Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, do you dare do this? Is this really what you're doing? Or, he says this, don't you know? Don't you know that saints will judge the world? And if saints will judge the world, are you incompetent to handle your own trivial issues? That's what he's saying there. Are you incompetent to handle trivial cases, to try trivial cases? He's saying, look, you, Christian, you are going to judge the world. So is it really true that you can't handle dealing with a couple of things that come up in the church? Is it really true that you can't handle being offended? That you can't, in humility, work out problems that you have in the church? Is it really true that there's nobody wise enough in the church to talk to when you have these problems? Do you really have to let them spill outside? Like, how in the world do you expect to judge the world if you can't judge these small things that happen in the church? And and I can sense Paul's frustration here because he's already gone to great lengths to tell them they can handle this. That they have everything they need to deal with this. Remember what he said in, in the first chapter of this letter. He starts the letter off just a few sentences in. And he says, here's, here's the truth, church. He says, I give thanks. I give thanks for you in Christ. Right? Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way, get this, in every single way you were enriched in him in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Get this, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. 
Paul starts this whole letter by saying, you, in the body of Christ, have everything you need to do what God expects from you. You have everything you need to honor God with the way that you go about your life as a church. Everything you do as a body, you have what you need. Everything we do as Blessed Hope Community Church, we have what we need. We are lacking in no good gift. We have everything that's expected. The church has everything. Paul says, I can't believe you're going outside and complaining about your offenses. You're whining. You're suing each other. You're defaming the church. You're defaming God. When I gave you everything you need, to handle this in the church. All of the resources, truth, wisdom, justice, equity, fairness, gentleness, graciousness, kindness, love, peace, all of it belong here in the church. All of those gifts reside here in the church. He has given us every single thing that we need. He's given the church in Corinth every single thing that it needs. But here's what happens time and time again. Not just once, but it's pervasive in the church. Every time somebody gets offended, every time somebody gets offended, they feel self-righteous, they feel justified, and they make a stink. It's what happens. It's what happens in our culture too. Paul says, it's not supposed to be that way, man. You have everything that you need. What does it take to solve a problem? What does it take to solve a problem? Love? We got that. A little bit of grace? Man, we are flowing with grace. Should be. Mercy? Gentleness? Kindness? Fairness? Equity? Understanding? Like, Paul says, everything that God could need, he gave you. Everything that you need to navigate this well, he gave you. We're lacking in nothing. It says so much to the point where you are lacking in nothing. You have everything you need so much to the point that guess what you're going to do? You are going to judge the world. You realize that, right? That as Christians, we are going to help judge the world. I know that feels weird. And it seems weird and we don't know exactly what it means, but that's okay. Here's what Jesus says after he writes the churches, um, the the letters to the churches in um, the book of Revelation. He, He says, look, to the one who conquers, I will grant him the right to sit on my throne. He's gonna sit with me on my throne. We will rule together just as I conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. Right? We will judge the world. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? I've given you everything you need in the church to participate in the judgment of the world. It's like, don't you think you could figure out these trivial things without defaming God and defaming the church? He continues, even more than the world. Don't you know, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then? the matters pertaining to this life. Now, ask me what it means to judge angels. Go ahead. I don't know. I don't really know exactly what that means. And frankly, it's not really the point that Paul's making. Right? Now, we know uh, from Jude uh, verse 6 and, and, and from Second Peter, we know that Jesus will judge fallen angels. We know them as demons. 
right? But fallen angels, angels that were perfect, that fell, that they will be judged. We will be sitting on the throne with Jesus and we will judge with him. So we will judge angels. Also, somehow it seems when we understand scripture that that we will have a hand in judging holy angels, right? I don't know exactly what that means. We were made, we were created. The psalmist says just a little lower than the angels for a time. We will have part of that. None of that really is the point that Paul's making though. So we don't need to get stuck there. The point that Paul's making is this. Listen, you have been given a lot. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. That is godly wisdom coursing in you. Right? You have been given the mind of Christ. You've been made new. You've got everything you need. You're going to participate in judging the world and angels. Like, trust me, the church can handle these things without them spilling out into the community, spilling out amongst the unsaved, and hurting the witness of the church. So stop being offended so much that you're more worried about your rights and your privilege and your responsibility and all of this instead of worrying about the glory of God. Stop that. We keep going. And he says, so if you have such cases, and they do, so if you have such cases, like, like I hear that you're doing this, you're defaming this, you're, you shouldn't because you're going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels, you've got everything you need to handle these things on your own. So if you have such cases, why in the world would you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Unsaved people. We've, in the first five chapters of this letter, Paul keeps talking about the difference between worldly wisdom, which seems right, but is really foolish, and godly wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit that is right. It might seem foolish to the rest of the world, but it is right. Right? And he says, stop listening to worldly wisdom because ultimately it's corrupt. It's bankrupt. It won't work. Listen to godly wisdom, even though it seems foolish to everybody else. And so Paul's saying, right, like, so when you have problems in the church, when people are offended and it needs intervention, why would you go out into the world where worldly wisdom reigns that's ultimately foolish and ask for help? Wouldn't you be better to deal with it here in the church? So here's, here's what that looks like. So if, if David is offended with me, if Pastor David is offended with me, and he's not, I don't think. I don't believe. But if he's offended with me, rather than going out or rather than me going out and, and, and causing a scene in the community and taking away from the glory of God and um, putting the church in, in bad reputation and robbing um, people of effective evangelism, says if we can't work it out ourselves, we should keep it here. You know what we should do? We should deal with it here in the church. Right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call Cal Rickles. Right? I'm going to say, Cal, man, you are a follower of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And a Cal, because he's right there. Right? I mean, it could be anybody. Um, but you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You're a man of the Word. You read the Word. You study the Word. You want to follow God. You have that wisdom. So what David and I will do is we will take our, our problem to Cal and we will ask him to arbitrate. We will ask him to decide and we will choose to agree with him. 
If he sides with me, awesome. If he sides with Pastor David, so be it. I have agreed to let the wisdom of God reign instead of taking it to the wisdom of the world. And you know what? If it works in my favor, good. If it doesn't, well then maybe if I'm getting godly wisdom, maybe the offense shouldn't have been in the first place. Maybe it was on me. Maybe I'm in the wrong. I mean, we hate to think about being in the wrong when we get offended or when we get hurt or when somebody bothers us or whatever the case may be or when somebody's offended by us. We hate to think that we might be in the wrong. But when we take it to somebody in the church, find out that, you know what, maybe, just maybe, I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. So here's what I'd ask you to do right now. I want you to to see, just think about the church this church. And I'd imagine that if you think about it, you can choose somebody in your mind that fits that bill. Whether it's one of the pastors, staff, elders, or just somebody in the body that you know well. That you know has the Holy Spirit of God living inside them. That you know are people of the word that you know are dedicated to following God even when it's difficult. And if you can think of one of those people, then you have the resources that you need. God has given you everything you need to handle things here in the body. You don't need to go anywhere else. It's the point that Paul is making here. He's like, why would you dare go before unbelievers who don't have the Holy Spirit, who don't have the wisdom of God to solve these problems? Let's deal with them in the church. He says, I say this to your shame, right? Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Is he like, is it really plausible that nobody in the church exists that can help you? Nobody here is powerful in the Holy Spirit. Nobody here is studying the word of God. Nobody here is trying to follow Jesus. Like, come on. But instead of doing it that way, his brother is going to law against brother. And so he's like, this has got to stop. You've got to stop being so offended that it starts to hurt the testimony of the church. You've got to stop being so offended that you feel justified in acting out in sin. You've got to stop being so offended that you're hurting the witness and the evangelism. You know why? Because we're supposed to be known for something different. John says in in 1 John 3, he says this, by this, it's evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. And I want to, I want to, I want to focus there for a second because this is a big deal. He's about to write, he's like, this one thing is going to tell us who is a children of God, who is a child of God, who's following Jesus and who is following the world, Satan, the enemy. Like, like he says right here, like, like, Hey, listen in big deal. I'm going to give you this primer, this, this cheat sheet, this code, this way to know, right? He says, this is the way to know if we're children of God or children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, and nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Listen, 
before you are known for anything else. As a Christian, you are to be known for your love. So let me ask you a question. If you are here today and you are still trying to figure this out and you will not, you're not claiming Jesus, you're just saying, hey, I'm interested, okay? Then you can sit this one out. But if you are here and you have walked through the door of salvation and you are claiming to be a Christian, then I want to ask you this question. What are you most known for? What are you most known for among your family? What about among your friends? Your coworkers? What are you most known for on Facebook and Instagram? Is it your snarkiness? Your sarcasm? Your vitriol? Is it your political persuasion? your beliefs about the country? Or is it your love? None of those other things are bad. But you aren't supposed to be, well, I mean, maybe the snarkiness. I guess it depends. I got to be careful there because I can be pretty sarcastic. Those things, listen, your political persuasion, your beliefs, your this, your that, yeah, 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 it's all good. But the thing that you are to be known for, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should love one another. Period. Especially in the church. And what are we known for? There are times in my life when I think certain people that are around me would, would answer the question, what am I known for? Or he's known the way he loves us. Unfortunately, there are other times in my life, maybe other scenarios, other groups of people, if that was the question, that wouldn't be the answer that they'd give. Unfortunately, for too many of us, different people in our lives will answer that question differently. If you were to ask somebody here in the church, oh yeah, yeah, they are the most loving and gracious people. If you ask somebody at their work environment, oh no, 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 that's not the answer you get. As the people they got drunk with at the bar on Friday, that's not the answer you'd get. Right? We, we have to be careful about this. But, but Paul is, is working hard. Paul is working hard to, to encourage this church in, in Corinth and us in the same way. He's like, look, look, look. Stop being known for something different. You're suing each other. You're, you're, you're bickering publicly. You're, you're hurting the reputation of the church. You're hurting the witness of the church. You certainly aren't bringing people to Jesus. Why? Because you're, you're squabbling. Instead, you ought to be known for your love. So he, he tells him to stop it. He continues. He says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Right? Why not suffer wrong? Wouldn't you rather be defrauded rather than winning a lawsuit? I tell people this in premarital counseling all the time, and I said it during first service even when Carrie was here, although I admit it was harder to say when she was present. Um, but, uh, but I'll tell you now, I tell people during premarital counseling all the time that when you get married, 
You are two individuals that have now become one flesh, right? You are united. So even when you win a fight against your spouse, you lose. Because your flesh, like your oneness, loses. So like I win, but Carrie loses. We're together. We're united. That can't be good. I'm, woohoo, I'm a winner. And she's like, oh man, it doesn't work. One, I, I don't win arguments very often anyway. Uh, but even when I win, I lose. I know that. Now, I'm not smart enough to always live it out. And she's not here to say amen. So I will tell you if she was, she would. I'm not smart enough to always live it out. But the reality is this, right? I'm smart enough to know it's true. And Paul tells us that's the way it is in the church. When we fight with one another, when we're offended by each other, when we lash out at one another, even if we reign victorious when it's all said and done, we've lost. Even when you win, you lose. Right? He's like, why not just go ahead and suffer wrong? That would be better. Be defrauded. Be taken advantage of. That's better. Now, does that make worldly sense? Is that worldly wisdom? No way. But it's godly wisdom. It's better to be defrauded and taken advantage of and to be wronged, right, than to fight, defame the church, to hurt the gospel, and to be right. Paul says, think about this. Now, again, I know that feels weird, but, but if Pastor David and I are having the argument, right, and, and Pastor David and I decide, you know what we're going to do? We're, we're going to go to Cal, and we're going to trust Cal because he is a, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's a man of the Word, and he is going to lead us in this, and we agree that whatever he decides, that's what's going to happen. And we go to him, and, and he renders his decision. He says, thank you for trusting me with this. I've prayed about it. I understand the word the best I can. Here's what I think is right. And and Pastor David, uh, it, it rules in his favor. It goes in his favor. If I say, you know what? Forget it. That's not fair. I'm not putting up with it. Well, that's a problem because I agreed to abide by Cal's decision. But even if I act that way, you know what David's right response would be? Fine. Fine. I'm going to step away from my rights. Why? Because he would rather be cheated or defrauded or wronged than to hurt the reputation of the church. This is Paul's very clear picture that he's trying to paint. And then, and then he, he kind of, if you read this in verse 9, he kind of shifts gears, right? Um, uh, well, let me tell you this. I guess I, I put it up there for a reason. One of the things that we have to be real careful about here too is that in the church when we allow ourselves to be wronged or defrauded or if we feel like we've been offended and we're just like, you know what? I was offended, but I'm just going to let it go. Listen, you have to let it go. You can't say, I'm going to let it go and then put it in your back pocket and hold on to it for later. We have to forgive one another. 
We have to forgive one another. Peter, Peter actually asked Jesus, he's like, Lord, hey, how often will my brother, uh, when my brother sins against me, how often am I supposed to forgive him? And then he asks, hopefully, seven times? Because Peter's probably thinking that'll make him look good. He's like, seven times? It's a lot of times to forgive somebody. I mean, seven times. It's like you're counting, like, okay, that was once. Oh, it happened again. Let me pull out my notebook twice. I'm at six. One more time and you're done, buddy. Like, like how many times? And, and, and Jesus is like, I tell you what, it's not seven times, but it's actually 77 times or 70 times seven. And, and the reason he gives that number is not so we can count. That's one, that's seven, that's 53. I'm getting there. I'm getting closer. I can get ready to cut them loose. Basically, he's saying it, it's infinite. It's permanent, right? Your mode is to forgive, Period. That's your attitude. Your attitude is forgive, period. And so when we feel wronged, when we feel defrauded, when we feel cheated, when we feel offended in the church, we work out our things here in the body whenever possible. We allow ourselves to be wronged if that's what's necessary. And then we forgive. You're like, Matt, this doesn't make sense. This isn't simple. No, man, this is, this is godly wisdom. This isn't worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom would say, you know, pack up your stuff. You go and you burn every bridge on the way out and you make sure everybody knows how somebody mistreated you and, and that's just all there is to it, right? But that's not the way God says to handle it. And then Paul continues with these next three verses, um, and it sounds like he's talking about a different topic, but he's not. He's just finishing the thought, right? He's like, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. So, so I love the way he's talking about this. He's like, he's like okay, so, so you have to be different, right? And don't you know that you have to be different because the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Now, what Paul is not saying to the church in Corinth is you better act right or you're going to hell. He's not saying that. These are Christians. They have walked through the door of salvation. They are saved. So he's not saying to them, man, you've screwed up a lot and you better fix it or else you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. What he's saying to them, though, is you're hurting the community. You're hurting the reputation of the church. Because don't you know that unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom? And if you claim, hey, I love Jesus, and then you go on living an unrighteous life, that paints a weird, wrong picture for people in the community. They aren't going to understand what Jesus really is and how they really need him and what it really means to submit to him. They're going to think all they need to do is say Jesus and then keep living. It doesn't work. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived and don't be deceivers. And then Paul gives us this long litany, this list of sins that are still happening in the church. It's not a complete list of sins, but they're categories of sin. And here's the deal. They were rampant in Corinth, and they're rampant in every godless culture. And they're rampant in ours. And we're going to go over these a little bit, not to dwell on them, but because Paul lists them, they're worth us talking about and understanding. And the first one he says is this. Sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
The Greek word there for sexually immoral is fornicators. Fornicating simply means this. Having sex, any kind of sex, outside of marriage. So whether that's that you are living together and you're in a long-term relationship having sex, that counts as fornicating. Whether you are having a one-night stand, that counts as fornicating. Right? Any kind of sex outside of marriage, God considers to be sexually immoral. So he says, you know what? Um, It doesn't mean that if you are sexually immoral as a Christian that you're going to miss out on the kingdom of God. But what it means is, Paul is very clearly saying to you here, stop it. That's That's not who you are. Stop living like that. That's not who you are anymore. You've been made new in Christ. Quit it. Idolaters. See, idolatry is anytime we, we elevate something else to God's position. Anytime we elevate something else to God's position, we are engaging in idolatry. Whether it's a, another religion, whether it's an actual idol, whether it's something in my life that I act like it's as important as God should be. My career, my spouse, the Cubs. Man, there's a lot of pain in that one. Don't do that. Don't make that mistake. Adulterers. Those that engage in sexual activity outside of their marriage relationship. It's adultery. It's not to happen. Those who practice homosexuality. Now, here at at Blessed Hope, we we believe and understand very firmly that God's design for sex is that it be between a husband and a wife. But too often than not, here's what we do. We elevate homosexuality as the sin, and we kind of ignore all the other ones. But you'll notice when Paul starts this list, it's not first, it's not even second. It's actually the third sexual sin that he bothers to talk about. It's still wrong. We still have to acknowledge that. But it is not the priority, right? It's not like he says, well, homosexuality is wrong. The rest aren't good. But this one is wrong. No, I mean, he lists. He's like, you know what? Sex outside of marriage. That's a bigger deal. Why? Because that happens in the church all the time. And we just kind of ignore it. We shouldn't, but we do. Right? Adultery, unfortunately, that happens in the church a whole lot more often than it should. And we say, hey, no, it's not right, it's no good, but, but we don't really confront it the way we should. Idolatry, like all of these things. And, and then finally we get to people that practice homosexuality. Yes, it's wrong, but we do ourselves a disservice. We do the, the, we do the gospel of Jesus Christ a disservice when this is the one that we want to talk about more. Right? We've got to pursue holiness on every front, not just focus on certain things that we like. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. The word there is covetous. When you covet something, that is, um, you are envious of what somebody has, you're greedy for it. And then thieving, of course, is you actually make the step to go ahead and take it when it's not yours. Both are sin. One is sin in your heart, one is sin with your hands. And it all comes from self-centeredness and selfishness. Drunkards. When you're drunk. 
when you are addicted to something, when you are intoxicated by something. Now, I want to say this, and, and we'll, Paul will address this actually later in this letter to the Corinthian church. Um, what I am not talking about here is the drinking of alcohol. What I am talking about here is the being intoxicated or drunk with alcohol, being under the control of something else. I've said this before. Many of you know it's not a secret. I drink on occasion. I do not get drunk on occasion. Drinking on occasion, I do not believe, and we'll, again, we'll get to how Paul lays this out with our rights and responsibilities and the limits of our freedom, but, but drinking does not equate to sinfulness. Being drunk absolutely equates to sinfulness. And this is another sin in the church that we just like to ignore. Because we go out and it's Friday night and we're with our girlfriends or we're with our buddies or we're watching a football game. We're hanging out, right? And, and then all of a sudden, instead of having one drink or whatever, it, it turns into I'm now intoxicated. Here's what happens when you get intoxicated with drugs or alcohol. You are now literally being controlled by something that is not the Holy Spirit. Christian, you are not to be controlled by anything except the Holy Spirit, so there's no room for drunkenness. There's no room for intoxication. Paul says that's a problem. If, if you're curious about that, I, I just would say this. I don't want to linger here too long because we will get to it later. But if in your mind it is wrong to drink alcohol, then good. Don't drink it. Don't violate your conscience in that way. If in your mind it is okay to drink alcohol, right? Because the way we understand what scripture says, fine, drink it. But do not violate your conscience by getting drunk. Do not sin in that way. And if you've got more questions there, hold tight. We're going to get there in this series, I promise. Revilers. Those with harsh words. Those who cut intentionally. They lash out. They hurt with their words. They accuse. They slander. They gossip. Paul says they won't, they won't inherit the kingdom either. Swindlers. Those who um, steal, but they do it in an underhanded, sneaky kind of a way. Those who cheat on their taxes. Those who are guilty. I know, right? That's unfair. Most of you are working on your taxes right now. Be careful. Those who, those who um, are guilty of false advertising, bait and switch, like, like these ways that we try to um, cheat people without officially robbing them. Swindlers. Paul says, listen, don't you know that these folks won't inherit the kingdom of God? You're not those people anymore. Here's what he says. He says, you were some of them, right? That's what you were but you're not them anymore. So stop acting like them. And he, and he goes through these three things real quick as we end. You were washed. Don't you know you were washed? You've been washed. You know, we say this Christian-y kind of thing and it sounds weird. You're washed in the blood. Here's all that means. It means you came to the cross and you said to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I am a sinner. I have sin in my life that I can't get rid of. You are the son of God. And I'm asking you to take my sin away. And I want to follow you. When you do that, the word tells us that you are washed clean. You are made new in Christ. You have become a Christian. 
Paul says, you were like that. But not anymore. Because you're washed. And you're sanctified. When you're sanctified, you are made holy. Because you are washed, you are holy. You are set apart. Now, are you always living holy? Uh Uh-uh. But the Holy Spirit helps you to live a life that gets more and more holy. You are made holy, and you're given the power to start living a life that works that out. And you are justified. That means you are innocent. You are no longer guilty of sin, but you are made right with God. You are, your new legal standing before him is that you are pure. It's a gift. Paul says, you were like that, but you're not anymore. So stop acting like it. And here's the question I have for you as we close. I know, and you're like, man, that's two weeks in a row he's gone a little long. I know, but I just read in Matthew that you have to forgive me. So there. I was going to say, so sue me, but you can't do that either. So, for the win. Anyway, here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is how, how I want to end. I want to ask you to reflect on something today and this week. How do you view yourself? Because there's a sweet spot here. Are you easily offended? Right? Are you an adulterer? Fornicator? Somebody who struggles with homosexuality? Are you drunk? How do you view yourself here? Right? Because, because there's something to be understood. What Paul's saying is, that's who you were. It's not who you are. Even when you fall down, even when you make the mistake, even when you engage in sin, that's not who you are. You're washed. You're sanctified. And you're justified. So I don't know how you see yourself, right? But I I know how God sees you. God sees you as clean. God sees you as pure. God sees you as set apart. And in that, he wants to see you live it out. And if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling living it out, then let's talk. As you reflect on that this week, how do you see yourself? As you struggle with it, I get it, right? Like we fall down and we make mistakes. But there is such a thing as repentance and moving forward. And so if you're struggling, let's talk. Because God sees you as washed. Right? He doesn't see your mistake. He sees you as clean. He sees you as justified, right? Pure. He doesn't see you as an adulterer. He doesn't see you as someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. He sees you as justified. He doesn't see you as a drunk. He doesn't see you as somebody who struggles with purity. He sees you as somebody who has been set apart and made holy. Our goal through the power of the Holy Spirit is to try to live that out. If you're struggling to live it out, then let's talk, right? But try to see yourself the way God sees you. Let me pray for us and close. God, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth 
that it gives us. We thank you that even though we struggle with this list of sins, that even though we struggle with being offended and offending others, and that even though we struggle with these hard feelings, God, that you see us through your lens, through the lens of Jesus Christ, as washed, sanctified, and justified. God, we thank you for the truth that you have saved us from our sin. And God, we ask you to help us walk in that, help us to pursue sanctification in our lives, and help us to see it clearly. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. Amen.